You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'm desperately trying to get through this chapter. And it's just every week I study and listen to different things. And boy, more things keeps on coming. It's like God's just like peeling an onion or something. Just keeps coming. Just keeps coming. So, so we're in that little series here in, in Romans chapter 11, speaking of God's purpose for the Jew and for the Gentile. And we've been in this series for five weeks now, but um, we saw the first um, several weeks that God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile, uh, first of all, it involves the grace of God. We saw that in verses 1 through 10. He starts off in verse 1, he asks, has God rejected his people? By no means. And he talks about how the grace of God saved him. And then we got down to verses 11 to 24, and we realized, under, came to understand that he talks about grafting, it, it, the grafting of God, that he was going to graft us as Gentiles into that tree, that illustration. And then the Jews have been set aside for a time, and yet they will be grafted back in, he says. But then we got down to verse 25, and it talked about the, the guarantee of God. And we saw both his promises in verses 25 to 27, and just a wonderful section of, of Scripture that talks about how God will be faithful, that God will be true to his chosen people Israel, the nation of Israel, as well as us. And so we looked at those promises. And then a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at the purposes of God. And even though God has set Israel on the sidelines for the time being, they're not the nation of blessings that they once were, uh, that he's not done with them. And so uh, we began to see how, you know, just to, if you haven't been here in weeks, what we've seen in Romans chapter 11 is that God has given all these gifts to Israel, his chosen people. He's given them his word, the prophets, all this stuff. And um, rather than use that as a blessing for others in the world, they hoarded it. They said, hey, we're God's chosen people. We're not going to share this with anybody. And... Not only did they do that, they didn't even obey the word of God that was given to them. As a matter of fact, it was Gentiles who basically caused their disobedience. They, they were infiltrated, they were uh, affected, influenced is the word, by the pagan nations around them. And so rather than worship the one and true holy God, they began to worship idols, which is just unfathomable. I mean, God went out of his way to make it very clear to them that you shouldn't do this. And yet, they did. And so they were not under the hand of God's blessing, but under the hand of his discipline. And so then, lo and behold, God uses everything for his purpose, amen? Even our disobedience, even our sin, even the sin of Israel. And so he used their disobedience to say, you know what, okay, you've heard the truth, I'm going to move on. And I'm going to go out to the Gentile nations. And now I'm going to share my truth with them. Well, when God did that, the church was born. The Gentiles responded overwhelmingly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas the Jews, what they do, they killed the Messiah. 
So uh, you can see the difference here. And so there was this kind of enmity between the Jews and God. And there's an enmity between Gentiles and Jew. And so what happens is the Gentiles begin to get saved. And even that has a purpose. They're getting saved because of the unbelief of the Jewish nation. And yet God uses their unbelief for the Gentiles' belief. And then he uses the Gentiles' belief to go back and make the Jews jealous as a people. And they say, hey, wait a minute, we want some of this too. (laughs) And that's what's going to happen during the tribulation time. And so it tells us, these verses, we looked at the fullness of time, when the Gentiles, the fullness of time has come. In other words, when every Gentile has been saved, that's going to be saved, the church is raptured out of here. We're gone. And we said that that's why we should be about the Father's business. We should be about spreading the news of the gospel. Because I don't know about you, but I'm looking for the day that when we're out of here, we don't have to deal with this sin and everything that's going on here on this earth. We'll be in glory with him. But that's not going to happen until... The fullness of the Gentiles, all the souls of the Gentiles, all those who are elect in Christ before the foundation of the world come to faith in Christ. And once that happens, the church is raptured out. It begins the seven-year tribulation. During that seven-year tribulation, um, God is going to do a miraculous work through the nation of Israel. It's going to look like, yeah, they're going to buy into the Antichrist and they're going to do all that. But then he is going to defile the temple in the middle of that seven years. And he's going to demand that they worship him. And they're actually going to go under severe persecution. And our verse in verse 26, it says, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. There's going to come a time of purging for the nation of Israel. So that eventually the truth that is written there in verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. It's not speaking about every individual Jew. It's speaking about national Israel. There's going to come a day that all of national Israel will respond to the gospel of Christ. The Bible says they'll look on him whom they pierced and they will acknowledge their sin. And that's why God can say in verse 27 through the Apostle Paul, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, the one thing that we fail, I think, as churches today to remember is that, first of all, that God keeps his promises. God's a God who is a covenant-keeping God. He, he, when he makes a covenant with us, a promise to us, it doesn't rely on us. It relies on God. I mean, aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't rely on you, but it relies on the faithfulness and the the graciousness and the mercy of God? I mean, we all at times make promises in life, and sometimes those promises we're unable to keep. Their promise is broken. But that's not true with the God that we serve. The God that we serve, his character, his integrity is far above that. His sovereignty allows him to make promises, and not only to make those promises, but to make sure that they come to pass. Have you ever studied the promises of God to you as a believer? It's a wonderful thing. 
But the problem, I think, in our churches today is that many folks in our churches, attending churches, don't have the proper understanding of who God is. Yeah, they go to church, they have a Bible, they maybe put some stuff in the offering. Maybe they even go to a Bible study. But they have a problem understanding who God is. They can't grasp the things of God. Nor do they desire to. They, they don't understand the attributes of God. They don't understand the character of God. And when you don't understand those basic foundational things about the God who saved you, beloved, you're very uh, deficient in your spirituality. You may not even know it. But you're very deficient in having things like a high view of God. You're very deficient in having a high view of Scripture, of God's Word. Yeah, you know, we'll think of God occasionally and we say, well, yeah, God's thoughts are not our thoughts and neither are His ways our ways. We get all that. But sometimes we want to, and this was my case, and I was trying to work through this Romans chapter 11. It's like, I just want to get to Romans chapter 12 because that's real practical stuff. You know, I mean, we keep on dealing with the Israel. We keep on, and I'm thinking, wow, Lord, you know, you're just, you're, you're kind of pulling me back into Romans chapter 11 here. And I think it's for that reason that when we fail to understand the God that saved us, the God that we claim to serve, we have a deficiency in our own spirituality. And when we go out into the world, if we don't have a proper understanding of the God who saved us, you know what? We're just going to get eaten up each and every week. And we're going to come in here dragging. Boy, man, I just hope they got a good song, a good message for me today. Because, boy, I need a shot in the arm. And that's how you're going to feel week after week after week. And so before we get into Romans 12, the practical stuff... We're going to spend a little more time in Romans chapter 11. Because I want us as a church to understand, first of all, a high view of God and also a high view of God's word. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was 20 years old, the story says, he began his half-century-long career in London. And he began it with a sermon on knowing God. That was his sermon title, in which he argued the proper study of God's elect is God. He said this, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. He argued that thinking about God improves the mind. It expands the mind. I mean, stop and think about it. How, how many hours a week, I should say minutes, do you actually stop and just think about God? Just think about Him. You're not asking Him for nothing. You're just thinking about who He is and the vastness of His character and His nature. I, I would say judging by our own Actions, our own words, our own desires, our programs within the modern day church today. There's probably not very many who are actively thinking about who God is, what he stands for, 
or standing in awe of him in the average worship service. Usually it's, hey, entertainment, lights, smoke, mirrors, kind of stuff. A.W. Tozer, a wonderful Christian Missionary Alliance pastor in Chicago, he wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And I remember reading that in college. And here's what he said about the church some many years ago when he wrote this book. He said, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. He goes on, he says, This low view of God, entertained almost universally among Christians, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worship in the middle period of the 20th century. The loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. But the alarming thing is that our gains are mostly external and our losses wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. That's how Tozer saw the condition of the church in his day, and I think that that definitely applies today. I mean, when you stop and look at the church, you think that it would have improved over the past several decades. But our addiction to entertainment, television, me-centered outlooks of our own time has made even the situation worse. It used to be, in the tech industry, it was who had the biggest screen. Now it's who has the smallest one. It's just amazing. It goes through tides and waves. See, and the really sad thing is that as, as churches in general, we don't even know this is happening. Someone once said, no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. No people ever rise higher than their idea of God. 
A loss of the sense of God's high and awesome character also involves a loss of people's moral values and even what we commonly call humanity. I mean, when you look at our, even our own country, if not the world, but focus on our own country and the utter disregard for human life, I mean, what do we expect from a group of people who turns its back openly on the God who created them? I mean, we even deplore the breakdown of moral standards within the churches. Not just among the people, even among the leadership. I was telling the group, I think it was Sunday night in our foundations class, that Mbeek and I went to a, a pastor's conference many years ago, probably almost 18 years ago. It was when, uh, what was that men's group called? The uh, Promise Keeper thing. When that was going on, they had a pastor's conference. Promise Keepers hosted a pastor's conference, and I wasn't a big Promise Keepers fan, but we went to a couple of those, and then somebody gifted us with a trip to Arizona to go to this Promise Keepers pastor's conference. And I thought, wow, this is cool. When I was looking through my office this past week, cleaning some stuff out because we had some work done in there and kind of rearranging things. And and I'm going through one of the boxes, throwing stuff out. And I saw this uh, conference brochure and it was the one that we got at the conference that we were at. And I remember thinking that's actually where my wife met Cynthia Heald for the first time at that conference. She had a little booth set up and they got to know each other pretty good. But I remember hearing these men speak and they'd get up and they'd speak and they're so eloquent and nicely dressed and had big churches. And, you know, as new to this church, I was probably just in the second, third year here. I'm thinking, wow, what an awesome thing. And so I thought, I'm looking through this brochure the other day and I thought, I wonder who these speakers were. So I started looking at some of them. And one of the keynote speakers, and I remember this guy was just really gifted in his communication skills. Very motivational. His name was Pastor Ted Haggard, big church in Colorado. If you don't know anything about Ted Haggard, he was caught in various vices, drugs, homosexuality, all kinds of things. He was the head of a big denomination, big church. And I remember sitting there listening to him going, wow, what a gifted guy. And now I look at that brochure and I'm thinking, Wow. That's probably about the time all this stuff was going on in his life. And yet he was able to stand up and parade himself in front of a group of people, pastors no less, who were totally deceived and sucked in. Thinking, hey, this was, you know, God's gift to the church. See, we have to begin to understand that, you know what, it's not what we see on the outside. It's what God sees on the inside. That's what matters. I mean, it's great you're here this morning, but if you're here this morning for any other reason than God has commanded you to be here and you're being obedient to the things of God and you have a desire in your heart to worship God in spirit and truth and be taught from his word and fellowship with other believers and join in in prayer. You know, if you're here just for a show, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
See, what do we think about? What should happen when we have a, quote, worship service? Are we focusing on ourselves? Are we focusing on our, our, own, our own selves? Trivial things? Our own needs? Thinking somehow if we come here, then God will bless us and our needs will be met? Is that what we're thinking? Or are we thinking thoughts of God? Many of us hardly think about God at all. (laughs) And the problem is not just the idea that we're preoccupied with so many other things. But when you come to the nature and the characteristics of God, part of the problem lies with the very nature of who God is. God is not like us. He's not like us at all. In fact, God is not really like anything else we can actually experience or know. And as a result, there's always something about God that is indescribable. And it makes it hard for us to think about God. It's kind of like saying, hey, you know, I'm going to go home and try to figure out the Trinity. Yeah, have fun with that one. See, when we begin to talk about God, a lot of times we use words like, like. God is like this. God is like that. We compare God to someone or something else. But in my experience, the closer we get to knowing God, the better we get about understanding who he is we realize those comparisons fall flat on their face. They fall way short. See, that's why at the end here of chapter 11, Paul says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer to all those questions is not one, nothing. Tozer, in that book, he talks about Ezekiel. And if you've ever read, tried to read Ezekiel, (laughs) you understand that Ezekiel, as a prophet of God, was seeing something in his experience with God that nobody has ever seen. Nobody has ever seen. And when you go through the first chapter, it's kind of, I mean, when you read that, it's just like, what's he talking about? This is weird. In verses 4 to 5 of Ezekiel 1, he says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like... He didn't say it was. He said it looked like glowing metal. And the fire was what looked like four living creatures. And you see, as you read through that chapter, the, near he, near, the closer he approaches the divine throne, his, la- his words as a prophet become less and less. In verses 22 and 24, he says, Spread out above the living creatures was what looked like an expanse. 
sparkling with like ice and awesome. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. It's not saying that's what it is. It's just like that. He doesn't know what else to describe it as. Finally, in verse 28, he's standing before the throne of God himself in this experience that he had with the Lord. And after a few attempts of trying to describe what he sees, all he can say in verse 28 is, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. That's where he ends. He finally goes, okay. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Have you ever thought when God prohibited us from making any images? The second of the Ten Commandments, you shall make you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children of the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I mean, when you read that commandment at first glance, it seems kind of odd that God would prohibit the worship of himself by images. I mean, who cares, right? Come on, God, grow up. I mean, what's the big deal? So we have a picture. We have an image. I mean, don't images focus the attention of the worshiper on God? Isn't that the purpose? J.I. Packer says this, First, images dishonor God. Images dishonor God, for they are always less than he is, and therefore obscure rather than reveal his glory. Secondly, he says, images inevitably mislead the worship worshiper, for they suggest false ideas by comparison. Now, you may be wondering, well, what about Jesus Christ? Even though God revealed himself to us personally in the form of Jesus Christ... Do you ever think about this? It was not by accident that Jesus came before the age of photography, before the age of movies, before the age of television, before the time of selfies. So we don't have a picture of Christ. We don't even have an electronic image of him. Instead, the way God reveals himself Even the way he reveals Jesus to us today is what? It's through the words of Scripture. It's through the words of Scripture. Medieval theologians used to speak of God as the hidden God. The hidden God. And so God is. God is always partially hidden. And even the parts we see, we see only because God has revealed them to us in Scripture. Why am I sharing this with you? I'm sharing this with you, hopefully, to give you a higher view of the God that saved us. The God that will save Israel. But to do that, I've got to lay a little groundwork here. So the nature of God is far above ours. Far above ours. And I think a lot of times the problem with believers is they, they don't understand some of the attributes of God. There's a distinction 
between what we call God's communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. Well, what's the difference? They're there in the notes. The communicable attributes refer to characteristics of God that he shares with us in some measure since we are made in his image. Things like wisdom, knowledge, love, mercy. In fact, all the things that Paul begins to mention here in the closing verses in his doxology here in chapter 11. God is infinitely above us in these things. I mean, we don't, we're not equal with him in these things. But some, somehow we can understand what they are since we share in them, even at a lower level. Well, the incommunicable attributes or characteristics of God are those things that he does not share with us. That he cannot share with us. Because it's uniquely part of what it means for God to be God. And we are not. They involve such things as self-existence, self-sufficiency, and eternality. I just want to look at these three this morning to give us a little perspective of the God that saved us. The God that Paul saw as he closed out this chapter 11. The first one, self-existence. This means that God has no origin. That he's always been. And that he owes his existence to nobody. I mean, when you and I speak of our existence, we'd usually say, you know, I am, I am, I am what I am by the grace of God, right? But when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, what did he say? I am who I am, period. See, this is our problem in knowing God. The way we learn about something is by breaking it down into its constituent parts and then tracing those parts to their origin that's what we do that's whether it's an electrical problem whether it's a communication problem whatever we so where's the problem at my car was leaking my old impala was leaking for through the sunroof or something and i went out there after this heavy rain two inches of water in the passenger side in the front seat i thought what in the world's going on so i covered it with a tarp thinking that would solve the problem but it didn't. I don't know if the tarp leaked or what. But anyway, there was still water in there. I think, well, where is this stuff coming from? So finally I traced it down. And I thought, well, there's got to be... You know, you're thinking your, your sunroof is watertight. Well, they're not. Water drips through there all the time. But it falls into a little trough. And at the end of the little trough on each side is a little hole. And in that hole is a little tube that runs all the way down behind the front two tires. Well, apparently that got plugged up. So not only was water running in there, it was running down through the lights and everything, all the electrical was kind of crazy. But it was on the floor as well. And I thought, well, where's it coming from the floor? Well, they, I figured out that on the windshield, there's a gasket on the bottom of the windshield. That wasn't broken, but when I lifted off the thing where you replace the cabin filter, there was a piece of rubber that attaches to the bottom of the windshield, and it's kind of like a trough. And it, the water comes down the windshield, and it hits that trough, and it goes over to the left down a drain. Well, that had come loose. So the water was just running right down into the heater and right into the floor. So I had two leaks. But I didn't figure it out until I took the time to, to do just that, to trace it down. But you know what? The problem with God is when we start to think about God, God himself points back to nothing. 
he is existent in himself alone. And therefore, ultimately, he is unknowable. Completely. We'll never completely grasp the God that saved us. He can't be analyzed and evaluated as other created things can be. He's self-existent. Secondly, he's self-sufficient. The tribute means, this attribute means that God has no needs and that he is therefore dependent on no one. Absolutely no one. See, we're not like that. We're just not geared that way. We have countless needs. I mean, just sitting here, you have the need for oxygen. You have the need to breathe. You have the need to eat food. By the way, we got lots of food over there afterwards. The Fellowship Hall. Free lunch. We have a need for clothes to wear, homes which we live in, other things. And if we're deprived of any one of these needs, even for a short time, sometimes we can even cease to be. We die. God does not need anything at all. He, in himself, he is and has everything he needs. See, this runs counter to what we believe, most people believe, about God. Some people believe him to be like themselves. They assume that God needs many things. If not to survive, at least to be happy and to be fulfilled as God. Have you ever heard this? I've heard this. I've even heard this taught in Sunday schools. Taught to children. That at one time God realized that he was lonely. And because God was lonely, that's why he created men and women to keep him company. I mean, that sounds kind of innocent. To a child, it makes perfect sense. Well, sure, I don't want to be by myself. They forget, forgot to tell the children that, well, wait a minute, God is a trinity. <laughs> There's three of those persons there. And that he always had a perfectly fulfilling fellowship in the Godhead. I think in our modern day churches, we think that God somehow needs worshipers. One commentator says, but if every individual on the face of the earth became an atheist tomorrow, refusing even to acknowledge God's existence, God would be no more deprived by our atheism than the sun would be deprived of light if all of us should become blind. Still others suppose that God needs helpers. They even suggest that he created us to help him get the job done. Whatever that is. I mean, it's true that God has given us extreme privilege and it should be counted as a privilege of doing useful and meaningful works for him. Even back in the Garden of Eden, he gave meaningful work for Adam and Eve. In the age of the gospel, the church age today, the proclamation of the gospel, he's given us the task of being his evangelists, being his messengers to go out. He's even called us fellow workers with Christ Jesus. But see, all that doesn't mean that God needs us. I think God can manage very well without us and has always done so. 
that he chooses to use us is due only to his free desire, his free will, his utterly sovereign will. The third thing here is the eternality of God. It's hard to describe in a word what eternity means, especially when you're talking about an attribute of God. But it has to do with his everlastingness, his perpetuity. In other words, it means that God is, he has always been, and he always will be. And that he will ever be the same in his infinite and eternal being. That's very practical for us when you stop and think about it. It means, among other things, that God can be what? Trusted to remain as he has revealed himself to me through his word. That's why when people come up with experiences, we always say, well, let's see, chapter verse here. Does this fit within the realm of the word of God? Oh, no, no, this is something new. No, I'm sorry. Don't buy that. What we read about God in the Bible remains as true of God today as it ever was. And what others have found out before us about the truthfulness and faithfulness of God will also, we will find the same. I mean, stop and think. God has loved us in Christ even before the foundation of the world. He did it even before the foundation of the world. Don't you think that we can be sure that he's going to continue to love us? And he'll do so forever? Since God has purposed all things from before creation, we can be sure that those purposes will be worked out perfectly. Above all, since God will be present at the end, just as he was at the beginning, we can know that he's inescapable. And that one day we will have to give him an accounting for what we have done with our lives. J.I. Packard in his little book, well, it's not a little book, Knowing God. It's not a thick book either, but it's a deep book. He says, you know what, to have right thoughts about God, he gives us two little things here. He says, first of all, remove from your thoughts limits that would make God small. Remove from your thoughts limits that would make God small. See, that's what we're doing is we're working our way through Romans 11. 11, we're, we're learning about God. We're learning about his faithfulness, his, his grace, his mercy. And when we scratch our head and say, yeah, but why would God bless Israel? They're in disbelief. Well, you know what? God says he's going to. Because our world, our limited world, is a world of cause and effect, of dependency and time. And we've been trying to think of God as self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal. That's what, when you read scripture, that's what it points you to. So remove from your thoughts limits that would make God small. Secondly, he said this, remind yourself of the acts of God that are great. Not just in the Bible, in your own life. Think back at times in your own life when, you know what, you were at at the end of the road. You were ready to tap out. It was over. And yet, somehow you're sitting here today. In the right mind. And you know that it's only because of God's gracious hand, his act, his faithfulness in your lives. Remind yourself of how God created the heavens and the earth, how he intervened in his history, even 
in the history of Israel to bring his people out of their Egyptian slavery and establish them in their own land, driving out their enemies. Remember how he sent the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth to to live and to die for our sin and to rise again as our triumphant Savior. In the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 7, it gives us, ask the question, who is a God like you? Just listen how Micah describes our God. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob. And show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. I mean, if God were anything like us, beloved, he would have never shown anybody any mercy. Why do I say that? Because they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve it. But God is not like us. Thank God for that. God is God. And there's no one like him. He is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, 6-7. If God were not like that, there'd be no hope for any of us here today. Because we would all perish. But he is like that. And that gives us hope. You need to think about those things to learn to praise him for that. He is our faithful God. Last week, I shared with you God's immutability. That God's life does not change. God's character does not change. God's truth does not change. God's ways do not change. God's purpose do not change. And God's Son does not change. A.W. Pink discussed in the attributes of God, he discussed God's faithfulness. And when we read verse 29, 30, in Romans chapter 11, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We looked at this last week. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. One of the things when we begin to understand that our God is faithful, A.W. Pink points out, God is faithful in preserving his people, first of all. He's faithful in preserving his people. We call that doctrine what? The perseverance of the saints, right? The perseverance of the saints. Now, you can understand the perseverance of the saints in a couple ways. It can mean that the saints persevere, or it can mean that God perseveres with the saints. (laughs) Both are true. 
The former is only true because the latter is. The only way we ever would persevere is because God perseveres with us. The followers of Jesus Christ will be faithful to him because he is faithful to them. In Hebrews 13, 5, Deuteronomy 31, God said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, 20, Surely I will be with you always, even to the end of this age. There's four texts in the New Testament that point this out. For us as believers, more than anything else, turn over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and look at verses 37 to 40. John chapter 6 verses 37 to 40. Here we're talking about the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to us, his people, and to Israel. In John chapter 6 verse 37, Jesus says, and this is from the lips of Jesus. Two are from the lips of Jesus, two are from the lips of Paul. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, what? I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, is it possible for the elect to be lost? No, absolutely not. Is it possible for somebody who's not elect to be saved? No, absolutely not. Because people will look at this and say, well, what about Judas? What about Judas? Well, obviously he didn't fulfill the last line there. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son, did he look to the son? No. Did he believe in him? No. Did he have eternal life? No. Or John 10, 27 to 30. Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I don't just know about them, but I know them. Aren't you just blessed to have a God that knows us? That knows everything about us. He's not some God that's off sitting on some cloud somewhere and is not concerned with our daily routines and our daily deals in life. He knows exactly what's going on. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Because I and my Father are one. The faithfulness of God goes right to the character of God. That when God says something, it means something. It means exactly what it says. Next, look at Romans chapter 8. We've gone through this just quickly. Romans 8, 31. Paul says this, What then shall we say to this in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? 
Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. I mean, that should encourage your hearts. And then also Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will what? He'll carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's no gray area. There's no waffling. There's no, well, if you cooperate with God. No. These texts teach us the perseverance of the saints. They assure us that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. But the second area that God is faithful in is God is faithful in disciplining his people. He's faithful in disciplining his people. God has called us to be like who? Like Christ. That's why we're called Christians. That means we'll do whatever is necessary. He will do whatever is necessary to conform us to that image. Oh, you mean like instruction and encouragement? Yeah. But also discipline. Hebrews 12 and Proverbs 3 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Corrects them. Be a better way to say that. I read an article about Harry Ironside, who was an incredible preacher in his day wrote many commentaries and whatnot. And he tells of an early time in his ministry when he was preaching over in Fresno, California. And the day came surprisingly to him, the story says, that he was entirely out of money. He didn't have a cent. He had to check out of his hotel, leaving his suitcase at a local drugstore to be picked up later. That evening, hungry, having had no supper, he settled himself under a tree on the lawn of the courthouse for the night. He thought of Philippians 4.19. My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ. He complained. Why doesn't God just do it then? Why isn't he faithful to his promise? And as Ironside prayed his way through the night, God brought to his mind things about which he had grown careless. And in his meditation, God brought to him a spiritual awakening. And of course, God did provide for his needs. In time, old friends appeared to provide housing. The meetings went well that he was preaching at. At the end, they took up a collection that was enough to get him home safely. But here's the interesting thing. As he left Fresno, Ironside stopped by the post office where he found a letter from his father. He wasn't expecting it, so he was kind of surprised that he saw it there. And in the letter, his father had written this. God spoke to me through Philippians 4.19 today. He had promised to supply all your needs. Someday, he may see that I need starving. 
And if he does, he will supply that as well. Ironside saw that God had been putting him through a time of deprivation for discipline to bring him closer to him. See, we like to think of God's faithfulness in other areas, but not necessarily in the area of discipline. Arthur Pink said this, God is faithful in what he withholds, no less in what he gives. He is faithful in sending sorrow as well as giving joy. The faithfulness of God is a truth to be confessed by us only when we are at ease, but also when we are smarting under the smartest, sharpest rebuke. Nor must his confession be merely of our mouths, but also from our hearts also. When God smites us with the rod of chastisement, it is his faithfulness which wields it. To acknowledge this means that we humble ourselves before him, own that we fully deserve his correction, and instead of murmuring, thank him for it. God never afflicts us without a reason. Well, the third area here that God is faithful in is not only preserving his people, disciplining his people, but also glorifying his people. And this is taken out of Romans 8, 29 to 30 that we read there. Verses 29 to 30 says, For God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. His point is that the glorification is certain for all those who are in Christ. See, and when we came to Romans chapter 9 through 11, this, these truths apply there as well. God's dealing with the Jews is an answer to the objection that we cannot be sure of our own final glorified state. Because some people look at that and say, well, the Jews were God's chosen people too, but now they're kind of cast aside. And Paul says, no, the Jews are not cast off completely. Because of God's covenant, because of God's gifts, because of God's calling on them that are irrevocable. It applies to our calling from God as well. Having been foreknown by God, predestined, called, and justified, we may know that we certainly will be glorified as well. Don't ever stop and think and question the faithfulness of God. Arthur Pink also wrote this, wrote this unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with rare exception, no longer his bond. In the social world, marital fidelity abounds on infidelity, abounds on every hand. The sacred bonds of wedlock are broken with as little regard as disregarding an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, the church, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth have no scruples about attacking and denying it. Nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. How many ways have we been unfaithful to Christ and to the light and to the privileges 
which God has been, has entrusted to us. He concludes, he says, how refreshing then and how blessed to lift our eyes above the ruin of this scene and behold one who is faithful, faithful in all things at all times. When we see here in Romans 30, Paul kind of concluding, he says, for just as you were at one time disobedient, but now have received mercy. When he says, for just as you were at one time disobedient. Mercy speaks of God's generosity. It speaks of God withholding punishment that we deserved. In verse 30, the Jews here are the Gentiles, the they are the Jews. For just as you were at one time, Gentiles were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, the Jews, disobedience. So they, the Jews, too have now become disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. And in verse 32, he summarizes this whole thing and he basically says that God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Mercy has the idea of caring, having a compassion for those in need and meets their need. God's mercy is acceptable to the Gentiles through the unbelief of Israel. It will be accepted by the Jews through the mercy of the Gentiles. And it's available to all in spite of their unbelief. When he says here they're all, even though Israel now is in a state of unbelief, God will still have mercy on them. And we may not understand that, but you know what? Praise God that he had mercy on us when we were in our state of unbelief. I don't think anybody here was at one time not in a state of unbelief. And that's what's so blessed when we read these scriptures because even though we were lost in our sin, that's what's so special about verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but, but the grace of God. This isn't something that we've earned. This salvation isn't something that we deserve. This is something that God has granted to us sovereignly through his love, through his mercy, through his grace. And I think we need to come to understand that, you know what, it's God who is the point, the center point of all this. It's not Israel. It's not the Gentiles. That's why he says they're all disobedient. See, as Christians, we think, oh, well, you know, we're better than the Jewish people because we're saved. No, we're not. And the Jews thought they were better than everybody else because God chose them. No, they weren't. See, and when you begin to understand your salvation that way, that we're not here because we're worthy. We're here because God granted mercy to us to believe the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, 
Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with a faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, that's the testimony. That's everyone's testimony who was in Christ. That's why in 2 Corinthians 1.3, God is called the Father of mercies. It's so important that we understand that it's even because of God's mercy that God even allowed sin to be sin. Because you know what? He wanted to put on display his attribute of mercies, of mercy and grace, faithfulness. He has to reveal that somehow. The only way he could do that, not the author of, but he allowed sin. And he allowed it for the express purpose, we're going to find out in the coming verses, as we close off this chapter next week, for his glory. For his glory. So ask yourself this morning as you leave our service, do you really know the God that saved you? Or maybe you could benefit by spending maybe a few more moments, maybe even a few hours this week contemplating who he really is. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though you are unknowable in the sense that we can completely understand you, Lord, you have shown us glimpses of you. One of those glimpses was through the Lord Jesus Christ who came down here on earth and took on a body and lived 30-some years and went to the cross and died a cross, a death that was just horrendous and gave up his life. And because he was a perfect sacrifice, he was the only one that could do that. And as he hung there on that cross and uttered the words, it is finished, our salvation was complete at that time. Our sins were paid for completely, past, present, future. For all those who would ever put their faith and trust, for all those who were ever elect before the foundation of the world, And so, Lord, we pray today that we would desire to share that message of hope and forgiveness with those who have yet to believe. Lord, we don't know who the elect are. Only you do. And that's why we're called to go and share the message of the gospel with everybody. And so, Father, we pray that you would use us as your people. We know you don't need to, but you do desire to. And I pray for everyone here this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would cry out for the mercy of God, just like the, 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 the beggar who lifted his hands and just said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will answer. He will show you the mercy and the forgiveness and the love and the grace that's available through the Lord Jesus Christ when you cry out to him with a sincere heart. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.